big guy following up shots, and if you leave to go try and block someone else's shot, you're going to have Shaquille all over the glass on the rim. How strong is he? Well, I think this backboard company will attest to it. When Shaquille O'Neal finished up his basketball career in 2011, he was billed as about seven foot one inches tall and a touch over 170 kilograms. And Shaq's a big unit, obviously, but he's also an athlete. He's healthy, finely tuned, still performing at the very highest level. But if you put Shaq's measurements into the Ministry of Health's Body Mass Index calculator, you get a reading of 36.7. Very unhealthy weight, it says. Increased risk of heart disease, stroke, some cancers, and type 2 diabetes. And this, in a nutshell, encapsulates both the usefulness and the limitations of BMI. We know that individuals with proportionately less body fat tend to have better health outcomes. But if we only use BMI, we may overestimate their obesity risk. The body mass index is a tool. It's easy to calculate and it can tell us useful things about someone's health and health risks. But if you're a health professional who knows what you're talking about, it's a rudimentary tool and nothing more than that. Because taken in isolation, it has serious shortcomings. It was based on an all-white European population males. The actor Brad Pitt at the time of the film Fight Club and the English rugby player Johnny Wilkinson in his prime were both overweight according to BMI. And it's still used today to determine health in the US with all races and all ethnicities. Today on The Detail, why are we still using a formula that was thought up nearly 200 years ago to infer how healthy someone is? What is the BMI used for and what are its limitations? And has this tool outgrown its usefulness? Rachel Thomas is Stuff's senior health reporter. Earlier this month, she published a piece looking at the BMI for Stuff's series, The Whole Truth. BMI is 200 years old. It was invented by a Belgian mathematician and astronomer, would you believe? His name, and I'm going to butcher this pronunciation, but it's Adolf Kutelet in the 1800s. And he didn't actually care about obesity or diets or anything like that. He was obsessed with statistics. So he found uh, that by measuring weight and height, he could work out the average man. BMI is calculated by taking a person's weight in kilograms and dividing it by their height, squared in metres. In simple terms, it's a way to compare the weights of groups of people of different heights. But it doesn't differentiate between fat and muscle, which leads to some interesting anomalies. His index was all based on the idea that the more numbers you get, the more accurate your average was likely to be. And his motivation for this was, I mean, he's a mathematician. He likes numbers. So he used this to measure things like, you know, the average weight of the Earth's population and how much we collectively weighed compared with swimming pools. You know, useful stuff. And, and so he's a statistician, he's a mathematician, he's not a health professional or anything like that, but he has invented this, this, this metric that is considered to be so helpful in one way or another that it's still in use in a pretty similar form to how it was conceived nearly 200 years on. Yeah, well, it, it's worth actually pointing out that it wasn't widely used until, I think it was the 1970s, so post-World War II, insurance companies they started seeing a spike in claims from from larger, heavier people. 
heavier clients. And so they thought, we need a tool in which we can assess this risk and we can make maybe base premiums off this. And so they started using BMI to judge a client's risk of illness. All right, so in using the BMI as a tool, what do we do? We input our height and then we input our weight and the index does its little calculation thing, mathematics, and then it comes up with a, a number at the end, right? It does. And what does that number tell us? So the number belongs to a scale. So the scale states that any number under 18.5 is underweight. Anything higher than 25 is overweight. So if you're in between, you're considered normal. And 30 and above is obese. Okay. And obese is synonymous with unhealthy or is it not that simple? So we are told that the higher our number is, the more likely we are to develop heart disease, type 2 diabetes, and and a big handful of cancers and conditions even like arthritis. There has been large-scale studies that show a BMI of under 20 or more than 25 has been linked to increased risk of early death. So you could say there are dangers with underweight and overweight, but there certainly seems to be a larger amount of health conditions stacked up against, you know, rightly or wrongly, stacked up against that higher number. Presumably, the BMI is not—it's not a refined tool, and so it can only tell us so much about a person or a population. Exactly, and and so one of the things that's really come through in in this piece that I wrote and uh, talking to ver- a various number of academics, none of whom all completely agree, I should add, is that BMI should never be used in isolation. Some would argue we shouldn't be using it at all, but BMI is just one number in a whole bunch of numbers that we use when we're assessing our own health risks and when we're assessing the wider health of our population. This is a big thing to keep in mind here. Having a high BMI doesn't mean much on its own. When Richie McCaw retired from rugby, having just won a World Cup, he was six foot two and he weighed about 108 kilos. And if you put those numbers into the Ministry of Health's BMI calculator, that tells you he has a BMI of over 30. He's technically obese. So what is BMI useful for? How will a health professional use this information? The first context, which is where it is incredibly helpful, is in terms of public health, both from an international perspective as well as a national perspective. Sir Jim Mann is a professor in human nutrition and medicine at the University of Otago. Because it is a reasonably good indicator of body fatness at a population level. And body fatness at a population level is one of the major determinants of health in a country or internationally. It is a very useful indicator from the point of view of global and national uh, public health. In terms of the individual clinical context, It is still useful because it is still universally regarded by experts as the best simple measure of body fatness. But there are limitations, uh, and I think it's important to be aware of those limitations. Well, let's talk about them then. So we've talked about how BMI can be a useful tool. In what context is BMI not especially useful? Well, perhaps in a clinical context, it may be useful to turn your question around and say, when is it useful in a clinical context? And I think it is particularly useful in a clinical context 
And by, by clinical, I mean, is it useful in determining risk of an individual? It is certainly useful when the BMI is markedly raised. So if you're talking about a BMI over 30, it is almost always very relevant and very useful and should be an important start to the conversation when a GP or indeed a hospital doctor uh, sees a patient. If you are talking uh, about the clinical context still, if the BMI is in the range of, we'll say, 18.5 to 25, which is generally regarded as the so-called normal range, uh, then it's quite reassuring. You can say to most people that that is quite reassuring. The real difficulty is when the BMI is in the slightly elevated range, that 25 to 29 uh, sort of area. That is when it is particularly important to look at it in the context of other clinical measurements. If the BMI is, we'll say, 27 or 28, and that person has got a moderately raised blood pressure, pre-diabetes, or of course, diabetes itself, or some other risk factors for poor health outcomes, then it probably is relevant. If you have somebody who has got a BMI of 27 and uh, they have got no risk factors for other disease, then it is a bit more questionable. So as a sort of a situation, you know, broadly, would I be right in saying a BMI is useful, it's a tool, but it is only a tool, you know, a screening tool, and no health expert worth their salt is going to infer anything concrete from anything other than an extremely high or an extremely low BMI? Yes. Well, um, yes and yes and no. And it depends what you mean by an extremely high BMI. I mean, I would say 30 is definitely still a reasonable cutoff for saying somebody uh, does really need to seriously be considering that they are in a, in a range where they're is an excess of body fatness. But what you've got to remember is in a country like New Zealand, we've really got one in three people over the age of 15 Mm. who have got a BMI in that range. One's got to be careful about dismissing it because, uh, you know, when 34% of the population are almost certainly at considerable risk from a Uh, their abnormal BMI, then I think one can't be dismissive of it. Uh, As I say, it's a useful starter. Even if somebody's got a BMI of 27, 28, you should be looking at other things. Having said that, of course, we have in New Zealand now a very clear recommendation that everybody over a certain age, and I say a certain age because it's younger for Māori and Pacific who are particularly at risk, and people from the Asian subcontinent in particular uh, that have recommended earlier, slightly later for Pākehā, but everybody should be having cardiovascular risk assessment. And cardiovascular risk assessment is actually a very useful measure if we're talking about people in their 40s or thereabouts, a bit younger for some people. Cardiovascular risk is very useful because you're measuring blood pressure, you're asking people about smoking, you're looking for diabetes and pre-diabetes, you're looking at um, body fatness, So you are picking up these things if you are practicing medicine or if medicine is being practiced, I should say, put it that way around, in the way that we currently recommend that it should. So everybody should be screened in early to middle age. um, and, and, And it will be able to be interpreted in context in those situations. 
You were speaking about the use of BMI on an individual level earlier. I wanted to pick up something that you told Rachel Thomas for the whole truth piece on this topic. You said um, a BMI is next to useless when assessing, for example, the body fatness of a rugby player. I took uh, Richie McCaw's vital stats when he walked off the park having won the World Cup yeah. in 2015. He was six foot two and he was about 108 kilos. Put these into the Ministry of Health uh, BMI calculator and it came out with a BMI of 30.3. I think it was uh, so, yeah. so. Just on on the side of on the side of obese, can you explain that to me, please? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can indeed. There are some people that have considerable muscular development that is contributing far more to their total body weight than it is for the majority of people. And if one is talking about a rugby player or somebody who has a very high level of muscular development, they are going to have uh, BMIs that are in the obese range. And the question that I so often get asked is, therefore, does that mean the obese range that is over 30, and there are plenty of rugby players, by the way, who have BMIs of 33, does that mean even a uh, in the obese range, a BMI is useless. The short answer is no, because there is a very small proportion of the New Zealand population that meets that definition of high muscular development. So for the vast majority of the population, that doesn't apply. There is one situation which I think is particularly important to mention uh, in the New Zealand context, and that is that Māori and Pacific do have for a given BMI, regardless of whether they are playing for uh, rugby for the All Blacks or indeed anybody else, uh, they do tend to have more muscle than the average non-Māori, non-Pacific individual. And that means at any given BMI, uh, they will have a bit less body fat and a bit more muscle. But I think what is really important to say is that those two populations are at very high risk of uh, type 2 diabetes in particular. And so we've had a lot of debate amongst experts as to whether there should be a higher cutoff for BMI as to when we should start taking BMI seriously for Māori and Pacific. But I think the general belief amongst people that really know what they're talking about, because of what I've just said in terms of their risk uh, of diabetes in particular and diabetes-associated illness, uh, that it's probably reasonable to have the same cutoffs for them as it is for Pākehā uh, New Zealanders. Interestingly, at the other end of the spectrum, there are a group of people who differ at the other end, uh, which is to say at a given BMI, they have more body fat and less muscle than European populations. Um, and I'm talking about, uh, in general, people from the Indian subcontinent. Mm -hmm. And perhaps for them, there should be a lower cutoff as to when people are regarded as being overweight or um, in that obese category. And I just really don't like the word obese because it's been used uh, in so many unfortunate contexts. This is actually an interesting point. In 2005, the Singaporean Health Promotion Board actually revised its cutoff points for BMI risk. It cited studies which show many Asian populations, including Singaporeans, have a higher proportion of body fat and increased risk for cardiovascular disease and diabetes. 
therefore, where in New Zealand a BMI of 30 would be considered very overweight. In Singapore, it's a BMI of 27.5. I must say, I really get a bit annoyed when people say, well, it can't possibly be any good because it was originally the Quetelet's Index and it was based on an astronomer, mathematician, statistician of the 19th century who was mainly talking about men. Yes, those are uh, interesting facts. But what is even more interesting to me is that when we've looked at modern populations, and there's been a lot of relatively recent work, which shows that BMI, within the limitations that we've been talking about up to now, is actually a very good index. Is that sort of like a don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good kind of situation? Absolutely. And now we've got some things in public health right now in areas that are of great concern to me, notably obesity, where people are saying, well, we can't be absolutely certain that some public health measures are going to prevent obesity. And because they're a bit nanny statish and we don't really want to tell people what to do, we're not going to do them. I think it is a total enemy of public health to adopt that particular attitude when we've got major public health problems and really a lot of circumstantial evidence that good would would result. Let's bring back the example of the Ministry of Health uh, BMI calculator and the fact that I put in Richie McCaw's vital stats there and it came back and it said he had a BMI of 30.3. The message that flashed up on that screen was you are a very unhealthy weight. I found that really interesting because because that calculation is so easy to do and just about anybody can do it, but as you've said before, the BMI has to be taken in in context. It's crucial that it's taken in context. And the number by itself in isolation doesn't necessarily mean anything. I suppose one accusation that might be levelled against it is even a useful tool, if it's used or interpreted incorrectly, can become counterproductive. Do you see where I'm going there? Sorry, again, long-winded question. I absolutely see where you're going, and I'm acutely embarrassed as someone who has uh, spent uh, a huge amount of my time Uh, advising the Ministry of Health on a number of topics, not just this particular one. I'm mortified is probably too, might not be too strong a word to hear that that comes up as a sort of random statement when you plug that in. Um, There should certainly be caveats, and I will, as soon as I have time at the end of today, I will go and have a look at the Ministry of Health website, and I shall probably be on the phone to the Ministry of Health uh, appropriate people to discuss with them Uh, what I think should be on the website. I would certainly not recommend a calculator, whether it's the Ministry of Health or anybody else, which says because it comes up at 30 that you're a sick man, Emil. I want to talk a little bit about the idea of stigmatisation, stigmatisation of body size Mm -hmm. and stigmatisation of the word obese. You've sort of, you've alluded that it's it's hard to negotiate this area. We should not stigmatise people for their bodies and we should be accepting of people and the world is moving in that direction. But uh, you also say there is such a thing as being unhealthy or having too much fat and the the risks of that should not be downplayed and it's a delicate equilibrium to sort of come to in that in that discussion without offending people while also communicating the seriousness of, of this issue. I think you are absolutely right. I mean, I have said 
unequivocally that I think stigmatization is totally inappropriate and it's inappropriate again at the population level and at the individual level. It is equally difficult for the medical professional, whether they're doctors or nurses, to know how to tackle it. And in the past, I believe my own profession, medical profession, tended to go in for stigmatization. They either ignored um, the issue of obesity or they went over the top and sort of people were accused of being gluttons uh, or something, uh, which is completely inappropriate. I think uh, it has to be handled very sensitively, best so by clinicians such as GPs or nurses in uh, general practice who know the people. The vast majority of people who are uh, uh, have got uh, excess body fat are fully aware of it. And um, sometimes they welcome a discussion, but it should be done in a sensitive and appropriate way that will be different for every individual. You know, telling somebody that they're too fat and that they should lose 25 kgs, well, is almost always totally inappropriate. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, when I know that a, a patient with diabetes for whom I have some degree of clinical responsibility can potentially achieve remission of diabetes, of type 2 diabetes, with all the complications that go with type 2 diabetes, there's clearly an obligation to make people aware of that. But there are ways of doing it. And, and I think increasingly doctors and nurses are being trained, uh, which I never was. I mean, I was never trained in this at all. I mean, in fact, I can't remember, apart from being you know, having been taught about the risks of obesity, how one deals with the problem. Mm -hmm. But I think students now are, are, well, certainly the students that I've been responsible for teaching, I, I make sure that they, they are aware of that. Mm -hmm. So it is a, a difficult situation. Um, I think um, less difficult at the population level other than um, stigmatization in the media and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But it's, um, it's a much more important, from my perspective, um, from a clinical point of view. And, and I think that situation is improving because at the end of the day, um, I don't think anybody wants to be fat. I think people are overweight or obese because of uh, genes and because of the environment in which we're living. So um, yes, stigmatization is important, but we cannot ignore the problem of obesity. We ignore it at our peril. That's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The Detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Sarah Robson. Bonnie Harrison is our associate producer. And thanks to Rachel Thomas and Sir Jim Mann. Matewa. Wa.